Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you don't have a clear curriculum for your classroom, it is so overwhelming to try to put that together yourself. Spending hours on Pinterest and Google, pulling worksheets and pulling pieces of curriculum together to make something that works for your classroom. That's why we created the Autism Helper Curriculum and now offer Curriculum Access. Curriculum Access gets you access to all levels and all subjects of the highly differentiated, evidence-based Autism Helper Curriculum. You can have students working on letter identification and working on parts of speech at the same time in our easy-to-use curriculum. We currently have hundreds of teachers using Curriculum Access from all over the world with consistently rave reviews. I want you to join that group of teachers. Now is the time to ask your administrators for curriculum access. We have an email template ready to go so you can ask them to set up a demo. Your administrators can jump on a live call with our team members to see everything that's included in the Autism Helper curriculum access. Next year, let's reduce the overwhelm. Let's start the year out with a path and a plan and resources to meet all the diverse needs of your students. Let's make next year the year of curriculum access. Head over to the show notes to learn more. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. Today, I'm sharing a topic that I think a lot of us are going to be very interested in hearing about. Today, we are going to talk about trauma-informed applied behavior analysis. I'm going to share my interview with Dr. Camille Kolu, who is a BCBAD and has 20 years of autism treatment experience. Dr. Kolu is truly on the frontier of this movement and has been for a while of working towards trauma-informed applied behavior analysis. She's going to share today about the importance of that interdisciplinary team, as well as how she's not treating trauma, but how she tailors her treatment when she knows that an individual has a history of trauma. We cover a lot of ground in this interview, um, and Dr. Kolu has such a wealth of knowledge to share in this area that I think will really impact anyone in the education space, whether you are a teacher, a paraprofessional, a clinician as well as a parent. So I'm excited for you to listen to this interview and I encourage you to check out our show notes where I reference a lot of the sources that she mentions as well as her website. So let's go ahead and jump in. Hi, Dr. Kolu. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. Hello, Sasha. I am thrilled to be with you today. Thank you for having me here. Dr. Kolu also has her four-month-old little son with her. So he may want to, you know, you might hear him chirp in sometimes and contribute to the conversation too. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think all of our audience can empathize with with that situation. Um, so Dr. Kolu's specialty is something that I'm really excited to learn more about and eager to share with everyone. Um, your kind of area of expertise is trauma-informed applied behavior analysis. And I think this is so exciting that there are more and more people going into this. Can you kind of give a quick synopsis of what trauma-informed ABA is? Sure. So back when I was starting to do this work, I didn't know if there was an acronym for it. I call it TIABA, other people, you know, TIBA, TIABA. Um, for me, it's the application of behavior analysis, right? So that's important to start with. It's, it's nothing different than what we do every day. However, um, some important distinctions for me are it's application of behavior analysis to treating behaviors that are affected by histories involving trauma. Um, I'm going to go ahead and distinguish that from treating trauma itself, right? That's mm -hmm. not what I do, but I do treat behaviors after trauma has been involved. And this might include documenting those histories and their significance and the risks that those things confer in this context of really rich team collaboration. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Can you kind of clarify that distinction between treating trauma and treating the behaviors that come after trauma? Oh, absolutely. So there are so many incredible collaborators that I have and that people really need if they're working in this space. So all of that, you know, the trauma-informed support from other angles, that's treating the trauma itself. So for instance, somebody who has a lot of mental illness challenges um, related to really adverse circumstances while they were growing up, um, they need something in addition to sometimes instead of behavior analysis or before behavior comes into play. I'll also share that sometimes in trauma-informed behavior analysis, what we're really doing is prioritizing with a social worker or a giant team behind this person what needs to happen first. And so sometimes we discover that what the person really needs is a, a need met. It could be for food. You know, it could be shelter. It could be a safe relationship. These things can come before what I'm going to do as a behavior analyst. So sometimes I help locate those needs and then refer the person to other specialties. But I'm never treating the trauma itself. I'm treating the challenging behaviors that might arise after trauma. They don't necessarily come from the trauma either. You know, I could mm -hmm. be treating challenging behaviors that somebody uses because they're not being understood in educational settings that goes along with their autism or intellectual differences they have. But if it happens after trauma, then I can come in and be involved. Does that make sense? Yes, that's such an important distinction. And I think that's really great to bring up right away and not misrepresent anything that we're talking about, right? And I love your kind of continued focus, like even in you know first few minutes talking about it, you brought it up so many times about the team and collaborating with other clinicians. Oh my gosh, you know, everything I do from even conceiving that I needed to do this research has been done with a team. Um I don't work with the same team every time, too. I kind of like to describe myself as collecting teams and collecting companies, meaning I want to leave you better than I found you if you needed something from me. Um, but I don't like to work with the same people every time because the composition of a team is going to be so individualized based on what that student already needs. 
and based on the new needs that we identify in our risk assessments. And yeah. so sometimes it, it can have up to 40 people on it, you know, these multi-level teams with the state that I've been on. But sometimes it's just three of us, you know, the person and partnering with their caregiver and me. Mm-hmm. So it really ranges based on what the individual needs and uses. Yeah. And that's and that's great to bring up right away too, because I see I see a lot of clinicians kind of not not veer away from that, but everyone kind of likes to stay in their lane because it's like it seems easier and neater. And I'm just going to, I'm the OT and I'm going to work on this and I'm the social worker and I'm going to work on this, but that's not how an effective treatment plan is, is going to be born. Like we need all of those, those voices to, to collaborate. Wow. You know, that's so important too. I, I think that phrase gets used a lot and I like to define it when I'm working with new collaborators. Our little John is really going here. Yeah, he's interested in this topic. <laughs> oh, he hears me talk about it a lot. It should fall into sleep any second. <laughs> so for me, stay in your lane is an important idea, right? Part of it is comes down to the ethical concepts there, meaning that I am not going to step on your toes. And if I do, you let me know because that's probably something I did unintentionally, perhaps from my history working with another team where you weren't there. But the lanes also shift, right? So people are often saying to me, I don't know if trauma-informed behavior analysis is within my scope of competence. So that's important too, very Mm. important. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. It means you should expand your boundary of competence if you've got clients with whom this is important. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, yeah, that phrase can kind of go so many different ways. That's a great way to think about it. Kind of to like rewind for a second, how do you, and think like, you know, as teachers and and parents and clinicians are thinking about their their students or their caseload, let's rewind for a minute. What, What is trauma? How do you define what trauma is? Okay. So for people who are really familiar with those ACEs studies, you know, it, Probably, if you're listening to this, you're thinking adverse childhood experiences, and that's fine. I also would add this this word adverse. I would change that to aversive conditioning experiences because some folks are going to come to me after a really pristine childhood. You know, nothing totally negative happened to them. They, they're developing pretty much on track. Things were not that bad. And then something really devastating occurred. And I don't want to exclude those folks who can absolutely benefit from what we do. So it could be aversive or adverse events is what I'm saying there. Um, for me, I'm going to include disruptions in caregiving and childhood, but also exposure to things that disrupt people's living situations or their safety or their health. Mm -hmm. So that could be things that take place in your history, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe your biologically relevant needs weren't met, or maybe there were social needs that were really violated. Could be there are um, things other people did, could be things that other people didn't do when it was time for them to do it. Or it could be things that happened to you that really changed your life, like the car accident that maybe killed your mother and father. Mm-hmm. you know, and you survived. And that's, it's really rough. Um, or PTSD from war, immigration, these multi-generational tragedies too. So it, it could be all of that. It could be one or two things. It could be a whole bunch. And I think it's important if we're, you know, I, I'm guessing we'll bring autism into the conversation when it's needed. But from the very beginning, just for your listeners to know that all of these traumatic variables are occurring on the background of whatever else somebody's going through. 
which can yeah. already be pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and then when you start to think about how big that definition is and, and, and how challenging so many of our students and learners' lives have been, like, I mean, it's it's perceivable, right, that a, a good percentage of our caseload could fall in this category of having some experience with trauma. You know, actually, about 50% of individuals with autism, mm. according to a lot of studies, may have already experienced trauma. Mm. And then to turn that around and say it a different way, being diagnosed with autism itself is a risk factor for trauma. Yeah. So it goes in both directions. You know, there's also so many challenges after having trauma, I mean, Mm -hmm. with having autism, that might lead to things that are going to relate to trauma later. And we could talk about those all day too. Yeah. So how can trauma impact students' behaviors? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question, and it's going to be as different as the students can be from each other, you know. So based on what the student already does, let's say they have not been through a lot of trauma before, a change in their behavior can let you know that something is going wrong. And something I always like to remind our behavior analyst and all the educators and therapists and moms and dads and caregivers with whom we work is that when behavior changes, you know, look at other environments before you automatically assume that something is wrong in the immediate environment. And so I'm going to give you an example. We've had several situations in different um, different contexts. And I work with group homes, um, schools that take out-of-district placements, mental institutions, really in-home programs, all kinds of things, right? And this is always true, is that the first thing people often look at is what is the immediate function of this behavior? And if it's abuse or if it's trauma, if it's something serious that's going on in another environment, then knowing what is the immediate function of behavior in your setting will not change anything. So in fact, it might lead you to doing an inefficient intervention, something that's ineffective and harmful while it continues to harm the student in another setting. And so that's why when things start to change, immediately what we've got to do is look at other environments and see, did something just happen over there? You know, so what we're looking at is, is something changing in a different environment? And that could mean, you know, maybe nobody's doing anything harmful per se, but his his mother moved out or dad is back out of out of jail or, you know, big sister's home from college and this is really rocking their world. Mm-hmm. So something changing is a good clue. So something changing in their behavior, something changing in their setting, somebody stopping using skills that they used to use. Um, That's a big one for me. So we look at developmental changes and how those would normally be impacted by trauma. You know, you might see a pause in a skill. You might see somebody who's toilet trained or who knows how to use the toilet under typical circumstances, and they might just simply regress or their sleeping might regress. Um, Their eating might regress. Their playing might become a little more repetitive. And these are all really interesting, aren't they? Because they intersect with other challenges the person already has. So that means that you can't just automatically talk up to these changes as, well, it's their autism or it's simply a part of their behavior. You always have to look at these other things before you make a determination. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. And I, I started your um, trauma-informed ABA course a few days ago, and you talked a lot about seeing the, the whole child and and really identifying all that background information instead of just focusing on the here and now. And you And as you talked through it, you can kind of see how how that could really do harm, you know, that you're going to implement a behavior plan that's not effective, but also those problems are still occurring in other parts of the child's life. That's right. You know, I think our greatest fear sometimes in getting into this work is, well, we really don't want to make things worse. Yeah. But my point sometimes to people who say, I don't want to do TIBA because I'm afraid of making things worse. Well, what if we're doing harm without knowing it? Yeah. You know? What, what if we're presenting trauma-related stimuli all day because we think this stuff is innocuous or, you know, we, we have no idea what they're going through or what they have been through that makes this mean something different now? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is kind of getting like big picture philosophical, but I mean, it's almost like every educator and clinician should always be coming from a trauma-informed perspective. Oh my gosh, you know, I don't think that's wrong. Now, stop for a second and consider does that mean you should always use trauma informed strategies? Well, not necessarily. You know, this is sort of like the tiered model in education. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not every student needs an FBA and a behavior plan, of course, but you should always be ready to look closer or look deeper or ask those tough questions. And if that takes every member of your team being trained, then so be it. Yeah. You know, I, I was talking with a big company yesterday. We, we do this stuff on a wide scale sometimes. And we were talking about how they really wanted a training for every member of the team right down to 
the janitors, you know, if somebody is in the hallway and sees a student who is just in the throes of a crisis, does that person know that they can say or do or not do or say, you know, something with their eyes or their mouth or their body that's going to make or break that student's day and possibly present something that would help them or hurt them? Does that person know what that is? And can they recognize a situation that calls for it? That was a really exciting realization and conversation to have. Yeah. I mean, how like how amazing would it be if if all schools did that? I mean, for like being able to find those cases and find those individuals that need support so much more quickly. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that um, because in, in one of the companies with whom I'm doing some work, you know, we're looking at, should we be screening everybody related to trauma? And have you or your listeners, have, have you heard of Nadine Burke-Harris, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris? I haven't. So she is the Surgeon General in California. This is a fantastic woman to look up, right? She's got a brilliant TED Talk on how adverse childhood experiences affect us medically, for the rest of our lives. And one of the cases she wrote about in her really wonderful little book called The Deepest Well was about this little guy who was maybe five or six and stopped growing when he was abused. So this led her to look, start looking deeper. And now she screens for trauma in her own pediatric practice. And she has just been this champion for doing it. I mentioned that because one of her articles, one of her articles published in a medical journal discusses that process. And they talk about, they talk about how this does not have to be an expose of what mm-hmm. happened. And that's, I think, something that, oh my gosh, you know, educators are always so concerned, rightly so, about outing somebody and really making their history just an open book for all everybody to see. We want to protect confidentiality. But she found that you could simply say, you know, here's a list. Here's a list of the top things people go through. I don't need you to tell me what happened or when it did or everybody it happened to or give me numbers A and B it happened, Z and C didn't. All I want is a number. So if you've been through trauma, tell me which of, you know, what's your number? Have you been through three out of 20? Is your number a six? That's all you need to know. Well, I did this with that company, Sasha. And what I learned was 100% of students in a certain program had been through the things I screened for. Well, I didn't need to know their names. All I needed to say was, well, we can now pinpoint those students need a trauma-informed approach. And the students in this other group? that didn't screen in, we don't need it there yet. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's interesting to think about, you know, like screening in that way. Yeah. And that, and not, and not needing, I was, as you were kind of explaining that, I wonder if that would be something useful that could be potentially utilized with parents too. Because I think sometimes parents feel nervous to like admit things. Like if, if they, you know, if they were going through a hard time when their son was younger and now their son's eight, but you know, it's, maybe it feels embarrassing or some shame from having to tell a teacher, a case manager, a social worker that, that they've now overcome. It's like, we don't have to deal with that. That was five years ago. But how can we have parents feel comfortable sharing these things that might help, you know, develop a better treatment plan for their child down the road? Oh, such a beautiful point. 
you know, this is this is real for my practice. Um, it, these conversations are real. We have them all the time. And really what, what led me down this path of universal screening and why I agree with Dr. Nadine Burkharis is these parents, you know, friends of mine, people who, you know, trauma happens to everybody. And now that we've all been through this pandemic, everybody sort of understands that, I think, in a deeper, more universal way. It really does affect everyone. Yeah. And something we're learning is that if we can start out, so I'm going to call it an antecedent variable, right? If we can start out with a family and let them know in advance that it's okay to talk about this stuff, that we're going to ask questions and it would be fine if they wanted to tell us. It would also be fine if they don't want to tell us any details. All they have to do is nod yes, you know, and that that will let us know something that could potentially stop additional trauma from happening to their student, to their child. You know, a lot of families are at risk because they have been through trauma as children themselves. And now they're there trying to parent the best they know how. And they're at risk of defaulting in those really hard moments to things that, that were modeled for them and that feel right in the moment that you, you just kind of regret a few minutes later. Mm-hmm. I feel like every parent can understand that. And I call it a dignified way out that if we give that to our students, but also our families, you know, if we make it easy and comfortable and really precious, you know, this lovely conversation I want to have before anything goes wrong in treatment, this can make such a difference. It can literally be life-changing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that phrase, a dignified way out, because, you know, it it's it's giving that opportunity to to communicate in a way that feels safe and respectful and, and not no judgment, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. I think, what you know, potentially people could be worried about. So thinking yes. about, oh, sorry. So thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking back to when I was in the classroom and behaviors that I've dealt with. And I know I had a lot of students that had a history of trauma and, you know, as teachers and as clinicians, you know, our goal is, is to do no harm, but to maybe those younger teachers or newer teachers or t- teachers that don't feel like they have this in their you know realm of competency being trauma informed, when students are displaying negative behaviors and you may expect, you know, suspect a history of trauma, I mean, in general, what are some best practices to kind of move forward with in those scenarios? I know that's a very broad question. Mm, no, that's a wonderful question. So I'm going to mention that word antecedent again, you know, which to me means doing something before anything goes wrong. So it will always benefit somebody to, to be familiar with what is it going to look like if it got worse and to have a form ready to go so that I don't have to go through this process of saying, I'm going to call in a behavior specialist. She's going to come into the classroom and take data for six weeks. Then we're going to have a meeting, you know, for me to have a, a sort of a dignified way in the system that my administrators support so that I can really be ready at any time and empowered to take this information from my student. You know, something's different today. I don't know what it is, but, you know, he's doing this thing and I'm, I'm concerned about him. No, it doesn't necessarily warrant a full FBA right away, but I know who can I go to speak to right now about this and where can I write this down? What's mm-hmm. our process 
communication going to be if this happens? Some of that is just going to go into a little what if book. You know, I may have a what if document and I use it for one day and you know what, tomorrow he's same old self and we never really figure out what happened and we decide that everything was okay. You know, that was just Mm -hmm. an off day, little dude. But what if it wasn't? So being ready right away is something that I advocate for every administrator to get your teams um, familiar with and fluent at. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And then, and cause what might seem one-off, one-off, if you're taking data on it from the start, then you may start to see that pattern or some consistency that's developing. Oh gosh, that's such a good point. You know, to bring data into it, sometimes we are asked as educators and I've been in that position, you know, asked to take data for a little bit longer before we're able to even call a meeting or before we're, we're sort of asked in other words, to justify getting help with data. But where does that leave a student who is actually going through something really bad? You know, I had a student once who started urinating in the classroom and the carpet was getting soiled. It was an old building. They were concerned for so many other students. You know, there were a lot of reasons for what they, why they did what they did. But this is old school. This has been probably 20 years. I guess I'm letting you know now (laughs) how long I've been back. (laughs) Everybody went right away to what we used to call overcorrection. And so this student was made to clean it up and to do that a few times. And it's really a punishment procedure. Yeah. Well, we took data on it. And I am so sad that this, this occurred. And looking back on it, you know, I've had similar students in, in my 20 subsequent years where that indicates that maybe that morning they were picked up um, from their mom's house by someone who used to have an abusive history with them. So now that I work in foster care settings and I interface with judges and all of those members of the team, I realize that sometimes things are beyond a student's control. And so, for instance, maybe someone got out of treatment for drug abuse, and now that caregiver is required to have meetings with the student every morning or every every couple of Wednesdays a month. And maybe that's manifested in terms of something developmentally inappropriate that the student usually has on lockdown. If a school's default is to treat something behaviorally and not look at whether this might be something that is a conditioned response to an aversive stimulus in their life, you know, wow, are we doing harm? And so just, just having a set of practices, you know, you mentioned best practices. I fully advocate for every student's team to have a list of what trauma-informed best practices are going to be for when things change, what are they going to do? And, you know, data is important, but sometimes being kind and acting right now, even though we don't have all the data is really important first. Yeah. And it's, and I mean, and when we talk about a big picture, it seems so obvious, like you said, you know, be kind and and try to figure out what's going on. But sometimes when it's extreme behaviors we're talking about in the moment, it may be hard to not as the, as the caretaker, the clinician, the educator react and be like, we need an FBA. We need this. This was extreme instead of like, like you said, pausing for a minute and looking at what else could be going on when sudden extreme behaviors happen. Mm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, I recommend through my practice that everybody get familiar with what a trauma-informed functional behavior assessment form might look like 
not that you have to use it, right? Again, one of those way outs for teams, but that will give you a space to document really difficult schedules for the student or times of day, month, year, week, whatever, that are more challenging because of what they went through in the past. And where, you know, where's our space for recording historical events that were really troubling or triggers in the environment that the substitute teacher won't understand but needs to be prepared to deal with, right? Mm -hmm. Those are things that have helped in my practice with different educational facilities so far. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And with, with learners specifically with autism who may not have a strong verbal communication repertoire or who may engage in you know, self-injurious behaviors or other, you know, ma- you know, quote unquote negative behaviors as a form of communication, H- how can practitioners kind of discriminate between when maybe those are a sign or a, a you know, a, a show for some type of trauma response versus this is a way, you know, that that student is communicating something that it may not be the way we want them to communicate right now, but that's the method they're utilizing. When, when we ha- don't have those strong verbal skills, what is your advice on how to kind of piece that apart? Ooh, I think that's sort of a difficult question. Yeah, and that is a difficult question. Yeah. Like you have this magic wand, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and it has differed in my practice with different students. But I will share that one of the things that have has made a difference for, for our work is to get as many sources of information about the student on paper first. Now, That might sort of seem like something you do already, but who's going to take the time and who has the funding, you know, to do that? So, for instance, if the student has a social worker out in the world and maybe a set of adoptive parents and a set of previous foster parents and they've been discharged from these facilities, those those interviews and some information about communication needs and how the student functions in, in different settings that information is probably floating around, but it won't be looked at until somebody's in crisis, okay? And so something that we have done that's been sort of helpful is we use a client at a glance form, and that's something you can make an iPad version of, and you can get as many little contribu- uh, con- contributions excuse me, as you can So how is the student likely to express things when they're really stressed? How does the student express that same thing when things are really great in their life? Um, You know, how, how do things already change when they're upset so that it's not waiting until something goes wrong and then you're sitting there sorting through the pieces going, is this just how he acts when he's stressed? Is this a different kind of stress? But this is not something that is done everywhere, although it actually doesn't take a whole lot of time. I find that if I give everybody just a little tool to write down these few answers to questions about a student's communication under these conditions, and I put a little visual about it, then that that visual can be pulled out in a crisis and you can say, oh, this is really different from how he usually responds to stress. Or you know what? This is what his social worker said he did every time there was a transition in his life. I love that idea of like different, like a, a stress, you know, a typical stress response and a typical happy response. Like that, that's so, that would be so valuable to know. I really, really like that idea. And that's something I haven't thought of um, in that way. And I think would be, 
I mean, that'd be useful for all teachers and practitioners to to know about new students and incoming clients. If you knew that was already in their repertoire, then you could like plan, as you've said, those antecedent interventions, right? Like it would help everyone kind of make the best environment for that learner. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Oh my gosh. And I love, I love that you're talking about, you know, creating environments and, and the shifts between teams sort of. So I'm kind of thinking about students who they're going into fifth grade and fourth grade has all this amazing information about them. But for whatever reason, you know, nobody wants to sit down and read this massive binder on what <laughs> happened in second grade. <laughs> I, gosh, can you identify with them? I can. Yeah. I don't have the time. <laughs> so our client at a glance form is something that we try to push because it's going to put the good and the uglier. And you know what? It can sort of reveal that we, oh gosh, he doesn't have a stress relieving response. (laughs) Wow. Maybe that's something that we could do preventively in our classroom so that we don't face what they did in fourth grade. So yeah, it's all about prevention. Yeah. I want to I want to kind of totally switch gears and and go back to something we kind of chatted about in the start about this idea of staying in your lane and your your boundaries of competency mm-hmm. and especially to the BCBAs that are listening or future BCBAs I think there's such a huge huge need in our field for more trauma informed ABA I hope like at some point everyone is is doing or and knows about trauma informed ABA so how can BCBAs grow their area of competence in trauma informed ABA Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, what would normally be advocated for in any area of competence should be done here. So there's a wonderful article by Linda Leblanc um, and Heineke, I believe, maybe Baker as well. This is several years old now, but they talk about expanding the consumer base for services and how to grow your own boundary of competence. You know, it's it's stuff in the ethics code. It's if you're not competent in something, get great supervision in it, really go out and seek mentorship in it, get experience in it, seek out the literature. And now that all sounds amazing. And I would love to do that for, you know, when I have a student with really extreme behaviors, I do those things. And sometimes it's easier to do for extreme behaviors than it is for something like trauma. I have a group of colleagues and we're all writing. We're trying to get the word out. We're not only putting things on Facebook and different groups like the ACES group that um, Dr. Gabby Morgan runs. Uh, she she did her dissertation in a trauma-related area in behavior analysis. So not only that kind of stuff, but writing articles to try to make, try to address this area of need within the literature. And mm-hmm. the first area is 
that there is almost a complete lack of a path defined for somebody who is a behavior analysis major and wants to go down this path. They sort of have to switch gears unless you're looking at a very tiny minority of programs that really factor this in. So the typical path that I mentioned, you know, experience, supervision, mentorship, literature searches, do all those things. You know, there's definitely a few of us who are trying to publish more. Um, I should mention people like Dr. Kim Crossland in Florida. Oh my goodness, she's got this amazing functional analysis interview tool for runaway behavior. And so Ooh. that's something, you know, a, a real trauma-affected and impacted behavior that you see. Um, there's the programs in Florida where they pay for behavior analysis that you might go and get mentorship with. There's Dr. Jeannie Golden, who had a student um, or a person that she fostered and later adopted and is a BCBAD and spoke at, you know, Association for Behavior Analysis International. So there's, there's these kinds of people um, and myself doing this work. But aside from that, there's not a whole lot and your literature searches will be a little bit difficult. So don't be afraid to email somebody like myself and say, hey, can I see your 50 page lit review? Oh, I would <laughs> love to share it with everyone. Absolutely. Um, or to say, you know, maybe there needs to be another course in trauma that you take that is not explicitly Tra um, trauma-informed behavior analysis, but that you, as a BCBA, you'll know how to relate it back. I provide a few things on my um, CUSP Emergence University website that's just a growing sequence of courses to give folks that translation. You know, there's an education course there. There's a course about my model. There's a course about an intro to this idea. But people really do need to seek out whatever they can find. And it's, I'm not going to lie to your listeners, it's not easy. But we do podcasts like this all the time. We're just really trying to get the word out. So accept yeah. that it's going to be kind of you forging your own path. Accept that you can complement your behavior analysis work with some great trauma work too. And let it intersect for you. Um, reading great books. I already mentioned the one by this wonderful doctor, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, but there is also um, Dr. Bruce Perry's work. And that stuff is from a psychiatrist's perspective, but it's about children he worked with. And you'll recognize if you take my course and you recognize NCR procedures, which I, oh gosh, I use those all day with <laughs> students after trauma. You're, I'll recognize that as I was reading Bruce, uh, Dr. Bruce his work. And I saw, oh yeah, he's, he's kind of building a relationship and approaching the student on the ground on the student's own terms. And that's what we're trying to do is teach people how to not go in and give demands right away, you know, avoid some of the procedures that are contraindicated, learn what trauma-informed needs to look like for your student. Yes. And I will link your, the um, Cusp University and your courses, as well as these two books you mentioned. But um, thank you for sharing all that information because I, I know people want to learn more and it's nice to give some suggestions. I love the suggestion of, of seeking training outside of our field. I personally love to do that. Like I, I like to consume content from other fields and then think about how can I how can I conceptualize this in a behavior analytic way? And there always is a way because it's Brilliant. the science yes. of human behavior. And it's, but it, it helps you, I think, become a better practitioner when you are more well-rounded. You know, it really does. 
there's that distinction I always love to make very clear is that the practice of behavior analysis is not the same thing as the science of it. So you might be a, a doctor and a BCBAD with lots of experience treating something, but that's your application. That, you know, that doesn't mean that you have all the tools you need already just because you have a fantastic science background in something. So knowing that we do need to expand our confidence and that there's a place to go for that, but you really might have to work a little bit harder to find that is important. I do like to give resources out whenever I can. And anything that we have on the website, we try to offer it free to parents. You know, it's not really well advertised yet, but anything that families need, we try to drive the cost down so that the BCBAs can get their conditioning, I mean, their continuing education but we don't want to penalize families, you know, for needing to know something. Um, and sometimes we'll have a school that comes to us for training and we'll say, you know, we realize it's for one client. Would you be willing to, to say, let's give this to all of the teachers in your school, even though they don't have this client right now? Um, and so some of the administrators and teams have been really excited about that approach. Yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. I think this is, you know, obviously this is, you know, your passion and something you've been working on for many, many years. And I think especially where the field of ABA is right now, there is such a, like a hunger for this. And I, I mean, I feel just even from the perspective of social media and consuming content that, you know, things in our fields have to pivot and following procedures in such a maybe kind of rote way without thinking about the context and the why has has hurt us as as a field that you know following just like escape extinction because that's what in theory we should do without thinking about what that looks like what's that doing to the child what's the history of that child's learning you know this this type of kind of framework this trauma informed framework could really benefit our field you know globally in such a big way Oh, that's so true. And, you know, it's really compatible with the work that's being done already. Folks like Greg Hanley and, you know, his wonderful approach to assessment. Um, Pat Freiman's work. I don't know if your listeners have heard that the good stuff on um, his new paper, you know, No Such Thing as a Bad Boy, that circumstantial yes. view. Really, that's all we're doing. And it's not anti-behavioral. I think that that was the battle I was fighting for so many years. I, I think about 10 years ago on social media, a listener um, will identify with this if they've seen any posts on Facebook from those ABA groups. You know, somebody inevitably will say, oh, but why do you need TIBA? Isn't it just behavior? What's the function? Well, I would ask that person to go and look at original writing by folks like Skinner and the other schedule researchers, you know, um, Kim Latall, Nancy Neef, they have a great paper about how histories impact the present um, and the schedules of reinforcement that go into that. So history has always been two things. Number one, it's huge, right? Mm -hmm. it, it is what determines what people do in the moment. And if I know the schedule of reinforcement that somebody learned a behavior on, I can predict how it will look when it's going through extinction in some way. But it's also been relegated to this realm of the very unimportant if we didn't arrange it ourselves. And wow, you know, that's pretty cocky of us as a field. And so we're just really trying to bring in that historical perspective, get folks to document the history, document the risk related to that, 
and then change your FBA and behavior plan based on what you know. Yes. Oh my gosh. This it's so it's so so great. I feel like I could like talk to you about this for hours, but I will I will try to wrap it up because I love I, that. <laughs> it, I know it's it's just it's exciting to talk about and I think it's so practical. And I think that, you know, when you say, I mean, even the number of something like 50% of children with autism may have experienced trauma, that means that every teacher likely has kids in their classroom that have a history of trauma. And you know, in in a state of education where classrooms are overcrowded and staff, you know, you're supposed to have four staff members and you have two. I mean, oh my gosh, right now every teacher I'm talking to, there's there's just no staff right now, and the positions are not filled, and it's putting educators and kids in really dangerous positions. Um, but I think this brings a new perspective that's needed when things are hard and maybe there's more negative behaviors than there should be or than normally are, that if we can come from this like compassionate place of what else is going on in this child's life, I think even as as the teacher, it's it it makes it in some ways easier to deal with because, you know, it's not it's something that is outside of the student's control, outside of your control, and you can, you know, potentially help this learner in a better way. Wow. Yeah. You know, you what you said there that's sad. It's it's sad that everybody's facing so much hardship and that we are as an as a society really understaffed too at the same time and everybody's going through their own trauma right yeah but it's also such an opportunity i think something else that came out of what you just said it reminded me of this example that we sometimes use with folks who are really anti the idea of changing or or even using behavior analysis with somebody after trauma is if somebody had a medical need that you knew about it, it, wow, it changes your perspective on their mm-hmm. challenging behavior. I think about this young lady I worked with. Um, she used to vomit at the sight of a spoon and, you know, just really, really terrifying behaviors whenever food was around and the OT and the behavior analysts were all working with mom. And, you know, people would get very upset with all of this challenging behavior she was using. Well, you know what, Sasha? She actually had a gluten intolerance. And oh my gosh. About celiac, she was literally in pain. Yeah. If we knew that, would we behave differently? Of course we would. And so this gives us an opportunity to change our behavior in such a meaningful way and to make a big difference. So I think if everybody knew how they could make a difference, it feels good. It does. It does. And I think that's what gets frustrating. I mean, at least for me as, you know, a former teacher and a clinician now, like when there is a challenging behavior and you can't figure out the why sometimes with students with long learning histories or behaviors that, you know, you don't have the right staff or facilities to create a safe behavior plan. It, to me, it always got frustrating. Like I want to help this child and I don't know why this is happening. So I don't know how to help. But when you learn more about that child's history, it, it, it helps you kind of have a little bit more clarity of like, okay, well, there, there are some you know, maybe deep-seated reasons. And even if I don't know what that is, it gives you kind of more of a path. And and I think people always feel more confident when they have some type of a plan. Oh, definitely. You know, what you just shared, that reminds me that everybody needs a basic skill of taking it back to neutral. So when you don't know what to do and everything is setting someone off, right? That it feels awful. You're walking on eggshells. You can't get anything done. You know, everything's a demand. But if you have that basic skill of 
really trying to recondition yourself as a neutral stimulus for that student, you know, not presenting any demands at all, not giving any praise at all, because imagine for a second, you know, that you're coming in after abuse. Well, so you saying, wow, great job sitting in your chair, Sonny, you know, that's reminding that child yet again, that you're just another adult noticing their behavior and talking about it contingently, right? So going back to unconditional um, acceptance, being able to be that neutral presence on the floor with them for a second, that's really important. That is behavioral. You know, we use non-contingent reinforcement techniques to teach educators and family members how to do that, but it's going to be really effective too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Dr. Kalu. This has been so interesting and I, I really appreciate you taking the time and I will be in the show notes linking some of the references that you mentioned as well as um, your website and your courses because I know everyone's going to want to learn more. Oh, feel free. You know, the blog over at Cusp Emergence is where we just try to share knowledge and then the universities where that continuing education happens. But I am always super interested to hear from people who want to know how does this apply and creating resources. I just love doing that work. So it has been such an honor, Sasha, to share this stuff with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you all your listeners too. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum. Everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.